Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 925. This week we hand the show over to Dan Zimborski and Ben Clemens, who have an extended chat about a number of baseball things. What is going on with the surprisingly successful San Francisco Giants, and do their playoff odds suggest that they should go all-in this summer? And how about the revitalized Chris Bryant and Javier Baez, who have the Cubs in first place in the NL Central? Dan and Ben also talk about the amazing Jacob deGrom, whose excellence has even extended to his at-bats. They discuss his chances of setting the modern ERA record, as well as ending up in the Hall of Fame. Finally, in some non-baseball banter, Dan wants to talk to Ben about some customized drinks for the most famous horse races. But before we get to them, I must remind you about the Fangraphs merch page. If you enjoy the podcast and the things Dan and Ben and the rest of the wonderful staff do every week, consider an ad-free membership. It is truly the best way to support and browse the website and can also be given as a gift. Thank you to all of you for listening and helping us do what we do. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Dan Zaborski, and I'm here with Ben Clemens, and we're going to be talking about baseball things and stuff. I think uh, I think Carson would have said all baseball, but I think we're just going to talk about some baseball. Yeah, but you know, it's a good mission of life to not do anything like Carson says. Uh, <laughs> I mean, fair. you're talking about all baseball. That That's a huge responsibility because then anything you talk about, don't talk about, somehow becomes not baseball. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. Yeah, we're, we're talking all baseball. Well, I, I didn't hear you talk about, you know, Willie McCovey or, or, or Fred Merkel's boner because that's fun to say because we're 10 years old. So we're here to analyze yeah. some baseball. Some of the baseball and assorted... An assorted of uh, some humorous bagatelles about things of note. So, Dan, what would you like to talk about first? The Giants, the San Francisco Giants. They keep winning. And, you know, Buster Posey has an OPS of 1,000. Brandon Crawford has an OPS of like 850. Evan Longoria is having a great season. They're, you know, third in the league in, well, in the National League in runs scored. And, and Kevin Gosman is having a Cy Young season. This is, this is a crazy team. And I thought the pitching staff might be okay, but I didn't see this. And so even though Zip still says that the, that the Padres and Dodgers are favored, I, I, I'm not sure like how resilient these giants are and if if we need to catch up or if it's a fluke and they drive me nuts to try to analyze. I, I think I like you, I'm not like that surprised by their pitching staff. I'm surprised by just how good it is, but I'm not surprised it's good. I like I'm probably not as big of a Gaussman fan as you are, but I'm a big Gaussman fan and I thought he was gonna be pretty good this year. But like they have lots of guys who are good pitchers. And just seemed like if they put it together and were healthy, they could be good. The hitting is just shocking. Yeah, I mean, it almost looked like Posey was done. Or done-ish. I mean, he he didn't play in 2020, 2019. He had a sub-700 OPS. He had, you know, looked like a man in steep decline. But somehow this year, the dead ball is alive in San Francisco. Yeah. And again, like, I'm not surprised Yastrzemski is hitting well. And there are guys who are hitting well that I can believe, but... Brandon Crawford is—he has a 500 slugging percentage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, home runs are down, but he's already nearly set his his second best home run season of his career. He's in his mid 30s. It it makes me feel like he's earned his nickname Crawdaddy because you have to be pretty good, I think, to earn that name. I mean, or just really presumptive, right? Yeah, you don't want to be a pitcher with 
with like an ERA of seven and have like an overbearing, like over the top nickname. You know, you have the ERA of eight, you can't be the Titan of the Diamond or something, some nineteen hundreds nickname. Yeah. Scott Godzilla Casimir. It's like, well, eh, buddy, you you have a five and a half ERA this year and your one start, so yeah, it's like, well, well, Godzilla lost in the end in most of the movies, didn't well, he? That's fair. I, I could have done better with my nicknaming there. But yeah, I'm, I've am i been very impressed by the Giants. I have not yet been to a Giants game in person, but I will soon. Uh, they're they're just selling a lot more tickets now, and it's going to be kind of cool that you know the last time I went to a Giants game in person, and every time I've been to a Giants game in person since moving here, they've just been bad, and now they're going to be good. Well, it, it does make a race more interesting. Uh I've I've only actually been to a game in San Francisco one time. I'm not a West Coast guy. And what surprised me, I think it would surprise a lot of people who aren't from the area, is San Francisco, when you're at the stadium, it is cold there. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the wind really matters here, I think, because there's no humidity. I mean, people think that it's like, you know, California people talking about, oh, it's so cold. It's going to be 65 degrees. Uh, I don't know why I, I did that accent for Californians. <laughs> Classic British Californians. <laughs> yeah, all, the, all those California Brits. But uh, one thing I was tracking uh, was the average game time temperature of every stadium throughout the last 60 years or as long as Baseball Reference had the temperature data. And the the game day temperature of, of San Francisco games and Oakland games were the two coldest in the league overall. I'm not surprised by that because it just doesn't get hot here in summer. So, you know, it's 55 to 65 at game time a lot. And most places in the U.S. have summer. Now, if we look at the playoff odds for, for the Giants right now, on up, up on fan graphs, I mean, they've been... As you, as you would expect, they've been inching up, you know, a little at a time here and there. And simply because of so many games are in the bank, there's going they're going to have you know pretty good odds. Now, I'm just pulling those up right now. Yeah, they're they're forty nine and a half percent to make the playoffs. But basically all of that is winning a wild card. Yeah. Three percent to win the division. Now, do you think these numbers are high or low at this point or absolutely correct? I would argue that, I mean, this this is probably some cognitive bias on my part, but I think that they're too low to win the division and too high to win and too high to make the playoffs overall. It does kind of reflect how kind of mediocre the NL is after the first few teams. I was asked on Twitter the other day if I could project the odds that all three of the good NL West teams, I don't think I have to name them, uh, make the playoffs. And what, what I guess should have surprised me was that when the Giants made the playoffs, most of the time, all three teams made the playoffs because yeah. that's just the state of the NL. It's like this perfect balance where the Giants can win the wild card but not be threatening enough to really take down the Dodgers and Padres wins. So even all those interdivision games aren't enough to kind of push the NL East loser and, and it's not going to be an NL Central team. That's kind of what our odds say, too, that, you know, they're making the playoffs half the time but only winning the division 3% of the time. Almost all of the that half the time, or at least a lot of it, all those teams are making the playoffs. And you can tell that from the fact that we have the Padres and Dodgers both more than 95% to make the playoffs. Yeah, but as we remind people, things that have a 1 in 20 chance of happening do happen sometimes. Yeah, 1 in 20 times, roughly. It's probably uh, one of the hardest things I had to explain in analytics because people will come in at the start of the season, maybe only like one or two players will be projected in Zips to have a 300 batting average. Uh, and then people say, Zips only thinks that two people will hit 300 this year. And that's 
you know, completely wrong because these are mean projections. Well, what you should say is, yes, bye. <laughs> yes, yes, go away. That that would be the easier and smarter thing to do, but I have a I have this kind of pathological need to get in the final word in any argument. So I'd end up arguing blue to my face. These are mean projections. There's a 10% chance that they'll hit like 330. There's a 10% chance they'll yeah. hit like 250. And the the majority of 300 hitters are overperforming just because of how things work. Yeah, distributions are weird things. Well, they're not actually that weird, but they're weird to think about. They're pretty weird. They're resistant to the way that our brains do things. Yeah, but we, we do have kind of like like bell curves kind of beaten into our minds now, at least. I mean, at least I do. Yeah, not I, I prefer, you know, a sledding hill you don't have to walk too, too far up on the other side. <laughs> but who do you think is the biggest threat to the Giants in the wild card? Do you think the Braves can can be relevant again? Because they're, they're starting to, I mean, they're four and a half games back in the NL East there. They're yeah, not looking great. There's, Mike, there's no Mike Soroka. How would it be a mistake to, to write them off just a little bit at this point? Because Zips liked them coming to the season, but they've just been kind of there this year. Well, I think the, the threat to the Giants is basically the Giants. If the Giants win 85 games or 88 games, then yeah, I, I think the Braves or even the Phillies really could catch them. If they actually win in the 90s, no, I don't think either of those teams are making it there. Now, one of the dynamics about the Giants that's interesting uh, for the playoffs is when we when we calculate playoff odds, we we cal- we also we, we basically calculate based on what the roster is now. It's a little little speculative to get ideas on who they would pick up. We can't yeah. say that. I guess we do allocate playing time to potential minor league call ups, but that's it. the The question is, would the Giants be more willing? Uh, based on their history of, you know, not doing a full rebuild, making small moves at the deadline even when they're losing, do you think that they're more inclined to chase a low percentage division title than most teams would be in in terms of making an, uh, making a trade at the deadline? That's an interesting question. They do set up to where that's not a terrible idea, where it's not likely that they're going to be great next year, or at least have a good shot at division title, just because of where they they sit on the aging curve and the team building curve and all of that. I don't really know if we have a lot of evidence of what Farhan Zaidi will do, but were I to be running the Giants and be in first place in late July, I think it'd be worth a shot. It's it's kind of a, you know, we always talk about how GM should just kind of maximize their their odds of succeeding by whatever success metric you care about and you know, not chase useless wins and be willing to give up useless wins as much as possible to improve other years. But this is an example where doing that probably means kind of mortgaging 2022 and 2023 to be better this year. That seems like a, like I wouldn't trade Helio Ramos or anything, but I think going for this title makes a lot more sense for them than for the Padres and Dodgers because I don't know, they're just going to be good every year. This one isn't particularly special to them. But for the Giants, making an unexpected run, that's often a good time to go for it if you think you actually have a legitimate chance at winning it. If it's, say, you know, July 15th, then you're tied with the Dodgers, but you think your true talent is really bad, maybe not. But I don't think the Giants are bad. I think they're pretty good. They're playing over their heads, but I think they're pretty good. Yeah, we well, the projections still don't have them above 500, but they're not a bad team. I think that we can definitely... We could. Let's, I want to say definitely because you can't definitely say anything. I'm not definitely sure we're not living in a computer simulation uh, because you know you know the philosophy that if a 
full simulation of the universe is ever possible, then it's more likely we live in one of the simulations yeah. than in the real one. But with the Giants, what I keep going back to is we, we, we did talk. You were talking about uh, the kind of get on the pot or not like, without using any curse words. Yeah. Commit or quit. Oh, good one. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think of a, a song that works for that. Should I stay or should I go? There, there's a song. It, it makes me wonder from, I hate to use the word game theory standpoint, since that fellow on Twitter a few years ago went on a thread that became a meme, but at what point does it become more valid to not do the, the compete or rebuild when every team is doing that? How many teams, what's the tipping point in which by going against that, you could kind of sneak in some of those marginal playoff appearances. Because if nobody values making the wild card, then maybe you could steal a few. And it almost feels like that the Giants are in that position. Yeah. I actually simulated this last year. Let's see. Oh, I must have missed that. I found it. Okay. So basically, I made 10 team leagues. I made all the teams have roughly equal true talent. And then I started having them tank. And then I started having more and more and more teams tank. And basically, if five teams start tanking, not a great idea in a 10-team league. If half the league is tanking, tanking is bad, and you should go for the middle. And I, I started the league out with like a distribution to where you know the best team was, better, was a lot of wins better than the worst team. So that it wasn't just everyone starts at 81 wins. But once five teams are tanking, it's like the sixth team tanking does nothing for them. Because it's picked over, and they're also giving up wins in early years. And even once four teams are tanking, the fifth team tanking doesn't do much. And it does feel like the NL is kind of approaching that level right now, where when half the league is bad, being the the marginal team who starts trying to be bad doesn't do much for you. I think the Giants, like, like there really is obviously some mathematical merit at some point. Quantifying when that point is is kind of a an open question. Yeah, a, di- a difficult task. I think I think about how to prove that, and I think, oh, God, I have other things to work on. Yeah, right. That That's basically how I feel. Like, it's an interesting theoretical question, and also one that teams aren't going to operate exactly based on, if that makes sense. I don't think they will be thinking like, well, you know, I wanted a tank, and I was very close to it, and I had all these players lined up, and I know the guys I want, but oh, this model says that teams in my position shouldn't generally be tanking. I think that most teams make decisions only when they think they will be much better off not when they'll be partially better off. And so, I don't know. These, these theoretical modelings aren't useful because they'll look at it and say, well, I think we're going to be bad this year. Like, I don't think we're good enough to compete. So let's make substantive improvements by tearing it down. Now, this, this league you created, were you a better imaginary commissioner than Rob Manfred? Because I don't think Manfred really cares for baseball. Did you care for imaginary baseball? Strangely, I did not. I actually had a runner start on second base every inning except extra innings. And people did not like that. Oh, God, you're a monster. (laughs) If the game goes 10, you're staying there forever. If I had a table next to me, I would flip it over and rage right now. (laughs) So so we won't get into chili because then it might be a violent podcast because, you know, all my chats end up on chili at some point. And I I feel like it's partially my fault. People do frequently try to set me up to duel you on chili (laughs) opinions. I think we have differing chili opinions, but I'm, I'm happy to keep it at a respectful disagreement. Yeah, I like the idea that our, our chat, our chatters or chatties or chat participants are trying to turn us against each other and, and kind of just this Machiavellian struggle for, for chat supremacy. Now, now, we talk about the Giants and tanking and how they're not tanking, but one team that had kind of a lazy offseason that pissed us off and is doing very well 
with that is the Chicago Cubs. They had a huge May. Everything, you know, their 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 plan of just kind of sit back, do nothing, and hope for bounce back seasons from Baez, Rizzo, and Chris Bryant. That plan is actually working. Work to perfection. It just it offends me somehow that they're being rewarded, and their rotation isn't very good at all. They've essentially had one league average picture there this season and in Adbert Alzale. And everyone else, even Kyle Hendricks, has not been particularly good this year. I know this is this is this has a personal aspect to you. But are the Cubs as good as the Cardinals? Uh I think it's pretty close. I don't think either of them are particularly great. But I do think that the Cubs are a pretty good team. Like, yeah, they they could have improved more, and the fact that they steered towards the murky middle feels distasteful, particularly given the fact that they just won't be extending a lot of these guys. Like, lots of these players will have played their last season with the Cubs. But their baseline talent level is pretty high. Just Bryant is, you know, people were talking about whether Bryant would be worth a 20-something million dollar arbitration salary and whether he was worth non-tendering. But that's not a question of whether he's good. It's a question of how good he is. I don't think anyone would argue that he's not a, a borderline all-star caliber player. And he's playing much better than that this year. He's playing more like, you know, MVP level Chris Bryant. Which is great to see, honestly, because... It would have been a real shame for him to get the short end of the stick from the Cubs with their service time manipulation and then decline and not get a great free agent contract because he was old when he reached free agency. I think I, as a clearly not totally neutral fan, because I I'm still am a Cardinals fan, even though I'm not like a, a Cubs hater or anything, I'd like to see Bryant and Baez succeed. They're a lot of fun. And it's kind of cool that they're both getting rewarded for it. I don't think Baez is getting rewarded for it in a sustainable way. I, I, I was looking... Um... And he is on pace to have the best offensive war for a sub-300 on-base percentage in baseball history. Yeah, like we know the kind of the joke with Javi Baez, but he's really outdone himself this year. A 3.5% walk rate, a 36% strikeout rate. Those, those are not good. Uh, that's not what you'd like to do. It is going to be one of the lowest walk rates of Javi Baez's career, just really saying something. And probably the highest strikeout rate of Javi Baez's career, which is probably saying something, and the lowest on-base percentage of his career, and one of his better offensive seasons, if he keeps this up, which would be truly remarkable. Now, going to the Cardinals for a moment, Nolan Arenado has pretty much put up, you know, the the exact usual Nolan Arenado season, except for 2020 with his shoulder problem. Uh, so... It seems like he's avoided any, you know, that the much overwrought Coors hangover effect. Uh, but the the best offensive player on the Cardinals has been Tyler O'Neill. Now, how much of this do you think he can keep up? So, depends what you mean by this. Do I think that he can keep, like, basically being Javi Baez, except for with an extra, I don't know, 150 points of slug or whatever? Let's say, do you think that he can slug over 500 as kind of a baseline? Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable a reasonable level. If he slugs 500, I think I'd be happy as a Cardinals fan, but not surprised, if that makes sense. But he is really playing out of his mind at the moment. And it is kind of fun to see just, you know, muscly guy smash ball. is It's actually kind of fun baseball when it's your muscly guy. I imagine it's very frustrating when it's the other team's muscly guy. Now, uh, one of the things that the Cardinals do have Harrison Bader, who's injured. How long do you wait to pick up an outfielder because they've been playing a lot of justin williams it has not gone well no so i think that that also kind of depends on what you think of o'neill i'm curious what you think obviously he's not 
this good of a hitter and he's only walking 2% of the time and it could all fall apart. But I know Zips has in past seasons really been in on O'Neill at times because like he just has done a decent job of like in the minors he produced a lot and he's an average hitter overall in the majors after this season like if you think that O'Neill is real I think it's justifiable to say that Carlson is a like a first division starter in the outfield I don't think he's going to win rookie of the year he was my preseason pick but he looks totally credible out there you don't necessarily need a a truly good outfielder if you think it's going to be those two and Bader that's a very good defensive outfield that can hit a little but the fact that they're they've been waiting on some combination of Bader or O'Neill for a lot of the year does really put some pressure on them having a serviceable backup. And it's kind of funny, you know, we always think of the Cardinals as this team that conjures serviceable backups out of nowhere. And not serviceable backups, serviceable starters. That's the whole devil magic thing. And this Cardinals team's downfall has been the fact that they really can't do that. Yeah, the bench hasn't been great. You know, do we do we call Matt Carpenter the bench now? Because Maybe if he were an actual carpenter, he'd be more useful. Yeah, it's a, it's not great there. I mean, Lane Thomas has been just unbelievably bad. Max Moroff, just good teams should not be giving innings or you know at bats to guys like this. And it it's just weird as a Cardinals fan, but also as an analyst because it that's the thing that they're good at, right? That they're bad yeah. at the making of stars, and they're good at the fact that all these random guys you've never heard of are league average hitters. Yeah, that, that, that is that is a drum that I've beaten a lot that I, I mean, I even make a, a, a long joke about it, that no matter what you think of the Cardinals, they're probably going to win somewhere between like 85 and 91 games a year, no matter what. Right. And there's going to be a guy who you're like, no, that guy's not good. Yeah, they're going to have a bunch of two win guys. It was like it was like the Colton Wong cards. Because yeah, exactly. that, that's like Wong is. You never really thought Wong was going to be a star, but you never thought he was going to be terrible. You just figured he'd put up two or two and a half war for the next decade until they, they go and get themselves a new jazz man. And you're exactly right. That's basically what he did. And it was great. That's Those players are very valuable. And if you are adept at creating them, you can sustain yourself just without, a, without locking into a star or having high draft picks. I think what we're seeing now is what happens when that doesn't quite pan out. Jack Flaherty is hitting better than a lot of the guys that the Cardinals are actually relying on. That's not good. I do like when pitchers hit a hit a bit. I mean, Fla- Flaherty has a home run, but of course, you know, you know, of course, which which famous pitcher is suddenly hitting because his offense won't do it for him. Oh, that was a that was an excellent segue there. Yeah, I didn't even plan that ahead of time. This was an unplanned segue. I would say perhaps one of the Mets' best five hitters on the year. You have guessed correctly. Jacob DeGrom, who I, I actually just did a piece on DeGrom where I was looking at his chances for a, a 1.12 ERA. And I was looking at the best 30 game spans since, well, since the data is available. But I, I, I was, no, because that's where DeGrom's going to end up about 30 games. He doesn't need to have 300 innings of a 1.12 ERA. Right. And in his, his best career span coming into this point, uh, was a 30-game span over 2018-2019. He had a 1.40 ERA over 30 starts uh, that amassed to 205 innings, and he went 10-9. and nine. <laughs> Classic. It's so depressing. But this year, teams have, like, when they've pitched around the eight-hitter, he's punished them. He's got a, yeah, very small sample size, but he has a 950 OPS, nine hits, three RBI. This isn't like he hit one home run to pump up the... 
Yeah. And he, he was never someone who was a good hitter coming into the season. So that I don't even know if it's a discussion, but it, I wouldn't marginally quibble with the fact that he wasn't a good hitter. He didn't have great batting results, but I think that I've watched a lot of Mets games because I both lived in New York when I didn't have MLB TV and also just enjoy the Mets announcers. And he actually looks competent with a bat in his hand. It helps that he was a position player in college, hit a home run off of Chris Sale in college. Well, based on where Chris Sale is now, I think everyone could. But that's 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 a little mean. <laughs> no, but I think he was an unsuccessful hitter in college. So it is surprising to see him really pick it up. And especially because there's no chance he's actually working on it that much. I wonder if the Mets in past years would have told him kind of, don't don't really swing the bat too much. You bat lefty and pitch righty and, you know. Sticking your elbow out there just seems like a bad idea. I mean, there's something to that. If you're not a good hitting pitcher, like in the sense that you're actually good, how much better are you really if you try hard? Right. And also, what does that cost you in everything else? I mean, it's the reason we don't really have pitchers steal bases. I mean, imagine every Mets fan. I can't really get in the mind of the Mets fan, you know, their their whole self-immolation thing that they have, their relationship with their team. But I would imagine that watching Jake De- Jacob DeGrom stealing a base, head first sliding, watching watching his arm reach the bag, I think I would have a heart attack. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know that Grinky is on a quest for his 10th stolen base, and I think that's very cool. I'm super into it. If Grinky gets on base, I will turn to the game, or if I know that he's on base. But if DeGrom said that he wanted a stolen base, I'd just be like, no, no, please don't. Well, the thing with Grinky... I mean, does he even really need to be healthy at this point? Right. You could just duct tape him up, and he could just throw a 64-mile-per-hour curveball. Right, whereas DeGrom, I think yeah. DeGrom really does, he does seem to understand that if his body is not at its peak functioning, he shouldn't be pitching. It's, it's impressive that he basically told the team, you know, I, I actually think I need two weeks off. Like, my body is not functioning at peak form. He took two weeks off, came back, is throwing 101 again. Who, who would have thought the Mets would have a good injury culture? Yeah, a good injury culture, and it seems to be like actually exclusive to DeGrom because every other player on the Mets is injured. But for him specifically, it seems to be working pretty well. So do you buy your essentially a little under 1 in 20 odds of him taking the ERA title? I, I think that there's probably a little more downside than Zips does, but I don't think it's that far off because he no longer has to throw a 1.12 ERA the rest of the way. That's the thing he can at this point for 162 innings, he has to maintain a 1.30 the rest of the way. And he's nearly done that before. And offense is a little lower than when he did that. So anything he's done before just a couple years ago, I think there has to be some chance he can do it again. I don't think it's like someone winning the lottery or anything in which obviously there's no effect of winning the lottery on your future lottery chances. Right. I don't know. I would. I guess if you like held a gun to my head and made me give you Jacob Degrom modern ERA record odds, first I'd be wondering what your end game here is, sticking up people, making them give you baseball <laughs> predictions. I think I would probably say like two or three percent, maybe. I don't know. Five just seems a little high. Yeah, I really want to see it happen. Degrom has been the most exciting pitcher to watch of my baseball following career. I think just in terms of like a a true Haley's Comet you never see this level player where I I don't know what a comparison would be in history. Maybe seeing Sandy Koufax pitch, like seeing Kershaw pitch and be great over a sustained period has been really cool. Like that's fun. But the drums, he keeps throwing harder too. He keeps throwing harder. He keeps getting better. Yeah. He's added probably like five miles per hour to his fastball since his rookie season. It's usually the opposite. Yeah. 
It's wild. And also, just the fact that he just seems to, every one of his pitches seems to get better, too. It's not like he's just throwing harder. His fastball, is, he's locating it better. His slider looks better. His curveball, which he rarely uses, is, like, one of the best curveballs in baseball, it seems, when he breaks it out. It's it's really just a joy to watch someone who is so good, like, just out of nowhere, too. Now, our friend Jay Jaffe and our friend and colleague Jay Jaffe is not here so naturally, we're going to steal his topic that he might say at some point. But do you think that Degrom is building kind of a Koufax-esque case because you you did invoke Sandy, and it's obviously not as many innings over his peak, but he's having a Koufax like like peak. I mean, we have him with like sixteen WAR over over two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen. When does he get to that point where we say he's a Hall of Famer based on his peak performance? And the question, of course, then becomes whether the writers will actually see it that way. Uh, I think I probably would, but I'm not the dictator of the Hall of Fame vote. They're just going to give me one ballot, I think, no matter how many I photocopy and send in <laughs> trying to trick them. It's actually a good idea. Stan Zimborski, Dan Zimbodski. You could just slightly change your name. What I, what I could do is I could kind of peek, because when you go into the stadiums and the writers are going in the press entrance at the stadiums and they're showing their cards, I should take note of people's names and numbers. And if I could send in all the ballots on the first day, maybe I can yeah. I can steal the I can steal the election. So this is uh this is going to out one of my friends from college for breaking some terms of service for a website that no longer exists. So it's pretty fine. Uh, I think that's okay. There was a website that offered referral bonuses for signing people up for poker. And one of my college roommates, my first year college roommate, decided that it would be a good idea, not a good idea, to uh, basically invent some people to get, you know, an extra $10 referral bonus. But he didn't want to use existing people's names. So he tried to slightly change the names of people that he knew. And I'm not going to give away the name of the person that he knew, but he named one person uh, Jerry Wombat. (laughs) (laughs) Almost immediately upon inventing Jerry Wombat, the website called him and was like, is there, is there really a Jerry Wombat? No, he's, he, it's, a, it's a nickname. He's Gerald Wombat. <laughs> and, and that was it for that scheme. And so I think that would probably be it for your scheme, too. To answer your DeGrom question, I would say, to me, if Jacob DeGrom wins the Cy Young this season in a 2018 or 2019-esque season, kind of a mix of the two, then yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. I don't actually think he needs a lot more than that. Three Cy Youngs in four years, another top three finish, just the kind of meteoric, this guy is the best pitcher in the game, and I don't think there's a lot of debate around that, that has been the case with DeGrom since he ascended to just what is going on Jacob DeGromness. I think that that is a Hall of Fame career, no matter the length. I, I know that there are probably a lot of voters, presumably in the older cohort of the uh, the BBWA voters, that would maybe say no, but I don't think that's right. I don't think that you can look at Jacob deGrom, what he's done for the last really four years, but even 2017, he was quite good, and say, no, I don't feel like this guy deserves to be in a hall that commemorates the best baseball players. Something's gone wrong in the way that you think of who the be- the players who deserve to be there are if you don't think that he deserves it, I would say. What worries me is uh, the Johan Santana Yes. Terrible because he had not quite the DeGrom peak or maybe that, that, that that's an argument we could have another day. But he had a very high peak and he got maybe because he was injured so long after that peak that he got very little support in Hall of Fame. And I was extremely disappointed like that. Maybe as disappointed as with Jim Edmonds, because I 
I tended to flip out nonstop on Twitter about the lack of Jim Edmonds in the Hall of Fame or serious yeah. consideration. And and it seemed like that nobody was willing to consider someone who was had like 90 percent of Koufax's peak as a legitimate Hall of Famer. And that I wouldn't say upset, but it it befuddled me in an unpleasant way because I, I have a hard time believing that the difference between someone who's perceived as an inner circle Hall of Famer and someone who's not even worth giving serious consideration to is just about 10% of performance. And that Well, Dan, there's one very clear difference between Sandy Koufax and Johan Santana, and that's that Sandy Koufax pitched when the current voters were young. Okay, that that's that's fair. But even even some of the younger voters didn't care about Santana. Yeah, but now he's a name from the past, and it's hard to compare that. But I would I would offer you this as a counterpoint to your I think solid point that Johan Santana's lack of uh, of popularity as a candidate is a worrisome sign. DeGrom's last three seasons, three complete seasons, of which I'm counting 2020, he's posted ERAs lower than Santana ever posted, despite a higher run scoring environment. Now, he doesn't get to pitch in City Field, but he also got to pitch in front of the Mets defense, or had to pitch in front of the Mets defense, which is actually, I think, a reason that his chance at chasing the Bob Gibson modern ERA crown is is even a question. Francisco Lindor, who I wrote about not hitting recently, has been fielding. And that's got a not that DeGrom allows a lot of balls in play anymore. That's not really his thing. He just he just strikes everybody out. But that has to really help the fact that there are just fewer fewer base runners, basically, because their infield efficiency particularly has been much higher this year than in all of DeGrom's previous seasons. There were years where if he allowed a ball in play, you thought, ah, I don't know. <laughs> Is the decomposing corpse of Yohannes Cespedes going to get to that one? Or will it be J.D. Davis at third base? It's like, oh, well, these these aren't good options. Now, I have a question that, that's very Fangraphs inside baseball. Have you written a, an article involving Johannes Santana and run into the dreaded appearance of the name doppelganger, Johan Santa? Oh, classic Johan Santa. That That's one of the, the worst name stealers where a slightly shorter name will uh, just jump yours. Yeah, it, it, it like butts in line. For those who aren't, aren't aware of this, which is pretty much everyone who doesn't write for Fangraphs, we have a little player linker in our articles uh, that finds player names and adds, you know, hypertext to them or links to them so that we don't have to spend an hour you know, trying to find all the players in the article, finding the right article. And what can happen sometimes is that if a player has a shorter name than the player you're trying to link, then they will kind of button line and and, and take that link away. So you're writing about Johan Santana, you you hit the player linker, and it's Johan Santa who's linked to. Also, sometimes uh, J.D. Martinez is hijacked by J.D. Martin. Johan Santa is probably the... Uh the most frustrating version of this. I think that I've linked to the seniors of Vlad and Tatis more than anybody else. Those are the ones that get me. Because if you're linking old players in your piece and you write about Fernando Tatis Jr., the link sees Fernando Tatis and it's like, I got it. I know that guy. I like to imagine that we all have kind of our our arch nemesis with a slightly shorter name. Like out there, (laughs) Dan Zimbo is out there. You have Ben Clem. I like Dan Zimbo. That's a good one. Uh, that was actually what one of my, uh, my 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 Spanish teacher called me in in middle school, Zimbo, because there were fifty people named Dan. Most people called me Zim, but he called me Zimbo. So I have a very on topic question for you here. It's not actually that on topic, but I'm curious what you think. So for an article that I came out 
I guess yesterday as this goes up for me, I wrote about whether it's actually bad to intentionally walk the bases loaded and what the math says. But I don't want you to have read that article. Okay, okay. I, have, I haven't yet. Perfect. Did it just go up? Yeah, it just went up. Do you think that managers intentionally walk the bases loaded too often? And what considerations would you give to it? Because I struggled to model it, actually. Not struggled, but I took a while trying to model it correctly. And I still am not confident I got it right. I, I have kind of an I have kind of like this feeling that the uh that we that the numbers will probably overrate it as an idea as a good idea. Uh I think there's probably an element that it's hard to account for. Uh just how it changes you as a picture or having a different margin of error. Now you can't walk anyone either. And it's dangerous to I think go into a situation tactically when you're that worried about a walk. Uh, I don't know if we can manifest it, and there's different things. I think when it's a purely tactical consideration, such as you already have a runner on third, uh, and it's you know a tie game, and we're in extra innings or something, and that run, getting that runner is more important than everything. I think then it would be justified. But I think actually think that say walking Barry Bonds intentionally with the bases loaded might actually not be a good idea, and maybe I or that's walking. The base is loaded, not walking with the base is loaded. But I think that there are some situations where you probably shouldn't be a little too cute about it. Yeah, so I agree with that. I attempted to get to the answer of how bad it was. There have been 61 walks to load the bases this year already. 61 intentional walks. And I'm talking pure intentional walks. Not like you're behind 3 nothing to Juan Soto and you're like, yeah, whatever, man. (laughs) Like, go to first. Just like... The guy doesn't even get to the plate. The manager just sticks up four fingers. There have been 61 of them already, and that shocked me. But most of them are to bring a pitcher up. I guess that kind of changes the calculus, if, especially if you're, in a, if you're late in a game or in extra innings and they might not have a big bench available anymore because nobody really has a deep bench anymore. Right. And then also, if it's the second inning, let's say, and there are two outs and runners on second and third and you're down a run and you have the eight hitter hitting, it's got to be very tempting to intentionally walk him on, face the pitcher. Pitchers are terrible hitters, <laughs> just terrible hitters. And it's unlikely their team is going to pull their starter in the second inning. But it seems to me like it's a worse idea than the numbers say. So I think I'm with you on that. The Cardinals have done it seven times already this year, which is how I came up with this article idea, because it just feels like they're constantly walking the bases loaded. And famously, or at least notably, they have the worst unintentional walk rate in baseball, so it feels like a bad plan. But here, here's a question that, that what your example brings up. I didn't even expect us to talk about this, but you, you say they won't pinch it for their picture, but maybe they should. So, okay, so it's let's say the top of the second inning, and you're up one nothing, and you have the bases loaded and two outs. How bad does your pitcher need to be for it to make sense to pinch it? I don't think necessarily... Well, the thing is that... Or how rested does your bullpen need to be? Yeah, I don't really know the right. Uh... Well, I I have the uh envision the the vision that if you do that, you could not wait the picture five days to pitch again. That it would kind of be a situation where it's like, oh, this is just your throwing day now. We'll, we're going to pitch you again in a couple days. So do you bump the other people back? I, I I think I do, or maybe then that makes them the ones who are farther away available for. I don't know. I think that there's a point where. Being the, the possibility of breaking open the game might outweigh, you know, normal rotation order. I don't know. Yeah, it is interesting, like, how... Because obviously you wouldn't do it with DeGrom. Well, also, he's a better hitter than all the Mets, so... <laughs> Especially bad example. But let's say 
I don't know, Garrett Cole. I don't think he's a very good hitter. Let's say it's an NL game. You wouldn't do it with Garrett Cole, obviously. And I don't think you would do it with Jameson Tyone. But would you do it with Davey Garcia or Clark Schmidt making a spot start? I don't think teams would, but maybe they should. It's interesting. I think Earl Weaver would, would experiment with that because sometimes he would experiment with with not naming a picture if, if, if the Orioles were up first just in case they batted around. Or no, there was – or naming a picture just – I, I forget the exact scenario now, so now I kind of sound I kind of sound stupid. But I don't know. Maybe we'll write a book about this. And I've always wanted to make a reference to this, but I'll say, well, everyone knows you don't pinch hit for your starting picture in the second inning, even if the bases are loaded. But what this segment presupposes is, maybe you do. <laughs> I've used that uh, that quote as like a a pull quote for my articles a few times. Yeah. Maybe maybe we can find the music for for Dylan to stick it. Now, this weekend, I mean, obviously, there's tons of baseball, which is, is cool, but we also have a horse race. And, you know, there's three horse races that people pay attention to every year, or non-horse race fans. I was going to say, uh, there's like, that three is the cap. I would say that I pay attention to one to three horse races, depending on whether it feels like there's a credible Triple Crown bid going on. And and Triple Crown, it, it sounds good. You can't have a fourth race, because then you have the quadruple crown, and it doesn't work you had to call it, like, the quadruple jewel or something, and that just sounds like a weird promotion at a at a strip club or something. So, I don't know if you know this. I, I would assume you don't, actually. But Packers running back, A.J. Dillon, has nicknamed both of his legs because he believes that he has larger legs than any other running back in football. I didn't know this. And he, what are the nicknames? He's nicknamed them the Quadfather. The Quadfather. <laughs> and Quadzilla. I think he had the nicknames first and then decided to name them. I think so for sure. They're incredibly good nicknames. It's like he wanted that to be his nickname, but it wasn't. So he said, "Well, I'm going. I'm not going to use this. So I need to use it for something." Yeah, I think Quadfather is better than Quadzilla. But both of those would be acceptable names for a four race award. If you win them, you're the Quadfather. That that is interesting. But let's get let's get back to the off topic. Oh topic. yeah, yeah. We're getting off top. We're getting off off topic, off square topic. Now, one of the things that I, I've always enjoyed about the major horse races is they all have an official alcoholic drink. And I, I tend to think that we should do that more, that everything should have an official drink that goes with it. And they all, all, all the, uh, I've had all of the, uh, uh, the, the horse race drinks. Uh, now, I've had the, the one for the Preakness in person, which I'll, which I'll get to. Uh, so I want to go through them and I want to see which one you would like to have. What your favorite okay. is. Now, the Kentucky Derby's drink is the most famous. It's a mint julep. It's a very classic dish. For, for those who aren't aware of the mint julep, you prepare a simple syrup. You mash mint and syrup together, and you, you muddle it with a, with a cocktail muddler. You add crushed ice, and you just add water and bourbon. Now, how do you feel about that? I am a big fan of mint juleps. I like bourbon. I sometimes, I sometimes think they're too sweet. That is, that, is, that is a danger with cocktails. Yeah, especially ones that purposefully have some simple syrup in them. Or like have a, that rely somewhat on a, on the syrup part. But I think mint juleps are pretty good overall. Now, uh, the Preaknesses at, at Pimlico, uh, the, the official drink is called a Black-Eyed Susan. Uh, the Black-Eyed Susan is the official flower of Maryland as well. So that's why it's the whole Black-Eyed Susan thing. So we're going way downhill on, uh, on popularity right away. Like, because I've just never heard of this. So you can tell me what it is. I've and I heard might of like it, it because see, I'm from Baltimore. Yes. And I always went to the Preakness with my grandfather as a, as a kid, usually with his with his friends Werner or Bruce, and he'd place bets for me if it was like a little kid. He'd place all the bets I wanted, and he'd also get me <laughs> Black Eyed Susans because 
they didn't seem to enforce <laughs> liquor and age laws because I was like a seven year old drinking a, an alcoholic drink with with bourbon in it. Uh, and they're really good. And the Black Eyed Susan, it, it's bourbon, vodka, peach schnapps, orange juice and sour mix. Oh, this I like this more than a mint julep. I can already tell. You don't have the simple syrup, uh, and obviously there's going to be a little bit of sweetness from the from the peach schnapps and the orange juice, especially. But I, I like the sour mix in, in, involved because I, I I do think yeah, that that sounds that sounds excellent. Down. So so you're on you you like the idea of a black eyed Susan? Oh yes, it's a fair margin ahead in my head, a fair margin ahead without having tried it of a mint julep. Now uh, the Belmont has the Belmont Jewel cocktail, and this is also a bourbon drink because. Bourbon and horse racing apparently go together. This one is bourbon, lemonade, and pomegranate juice. Hmm. Ah, uh, I have to think about this one. Is it sweet? I've I've had it before. It's it's not as sweet as a mint julep, but I think it's a little sweeter than a black eyed susan. It kind of depends what lemonade they're using. I feel like, but I think I would put this around the julep. I don't know how I would like lemonade and pomegranate juice together, but it's hard to go wrong. I'm surprised none of them have bitters. Nope, it, I think because these are mass, these are kind of mass appeal drinks, and they're always they summer drinks enough. too, or at least hot weather drinks. Because they nice. serve, yeah, they serve a ton of these at the Preakness. I can't, I can't vouch for how many they serve at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, lots, the lots. I, can't I, I assume lots, but but at Baltimore they serve a billion of these, and you always get a nice glass with like a list of all the Preakness winners, and 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 Pimlico, of course, like like a lot of places, has that infield. It's it's a very class based situation at horse racing. Uh, yes. We always sat in the grandstands, you know, where a lot of people dressed up. I never dressed up because I don't dress up for anything. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna be pissed if I wear a suit if I'm wearing a suit when I'm buried someday. That'll really piss me off. Uh, but you know, you have the the, the hoity toity in the stands with dressed up, you know, in sundresses and suits, and and in the infield it's the shirtless masses, <laughs> and everybody is sunburned and vomiting. Yeah. So I guess I would say the the line for me then would be Black Eyed Susan, big gap. Like, that's tier one by itself. That's the S tier. And then the next tier is Mint Juleps ever so slightly ahead of the one whose name I already forgot. The Belmont Jewel. It, yeah, it, needs, man, it, it needs a catchier name. Bad name, yeah. Mint Julep works because it's a very classic thing. And Black Eyed Susan works because it's a good name. Belmont Jewel, yeah, that's that's not doing it for me. The name, I think, might sink it from second to third in these rankings. Well, anyway, uh, since I'm now Wait, thinking Dan, what, about... what's your order? Oh, oh, well, I'm going to... I have to put the... the Well, anything with bourbon will do well with me. I can't drink bourbon as much as I used to because I have acid reflux and all that stuff. But I, I would definitely put the Black black Eyed Susan high. I, I think that it's not just being a homer. I do like it. I like I like the vodka in it. Uh, sometimes it, it makes sure that... It like it like teams up with the bourbon to make sure you get a a a, a good punch from the orange over the orange juice. Like it teams up. Like yeah, you are you can get wasted on these if you drink enough of them. Uh, I, I I do like mint juleps because I do like it's a I, it can be too sweet, but I also like that it's a very simple drink. And yes, I I, I, agree I, I like simple things. I like mint too. I think mint is underused. And I'm just the Belmont Jewel is just a little boring. So you'd have the same order as me, but perhaps yeah. different uh, degrees of separation yeah, between two and three. Perhaps different reasons. Yeah. But anyway, since I'm thinking about liquor, that means it's lunchtime. Uh, so I think it's time for us to close another Fangraphs Audio. Uh, I'm Dan Zaborski, and I was joined today by Ben Clemens again. And yeah. Hello, Dan. And goodbye. And goodbye. <laughs>
So thanks for joining us. Uh, you can see us at Fangraphs.com. Catch us on social media and all those good things. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Big thank you to Dan Zimbo and Ben Clem. Remember to check out the Fangraphs merch page, as well as sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. Keep an eye on our Twitch channel as well, Fangraphs Live, as Jason Martinez is doing the Roster Resource Show every Wednesday evening at 4.30 Pacific. We will be back next week with another episode. Have a good one.